Welcome to IBS Chat from the IBS Patient Support Group. I'm Jeffrey Roberts, the IBS expert and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group website and social media platforms and creator of World IBS Day, held every April 19th. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome at age 16 and I've lived with IBS for over 25 years. It's my mission to educate people living with irritable bowel syndrome and to raise awareness about research and treatment options and what it's like to live with IBS. The IBS Patient Support Group is a community to inform and support irritable bowel syndrome sufferers and can be reached at ibspatient.org. Supporting IBS patients is something that I think of every day because the quality of life of an IBS patient and those that support them is very important to me. Episode number 12. Johanna Ruddy is the Executive Director of the Rome Foundation and a patient advocate. Johanna works to provide the patient perspective to everything that she does. She has written a patient perspective article that was published in the journal Gastro and has participated in faculty panels for webinars providing the patient perspective on patient-provider communications and burden of illness. She recently co-wrote and published the book Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction which is a guide for patients and doctors. Johanna and I got together to discuss our own experiences related to what I wish someone had told me about IBS. We discuss how patients aren't alone and how you can gain information from others. Support groups understand what you're going through. Find the most appropriate community for you. We believe that stigma about talking about IBS might be decreased if people were more open about suffering with it. IBS is manageable more than ever, but it is very subjective and individual as to what symptoms can be managed. We speak about the difference between being bloated versus distended and spend some time on the role of the brain-gut axis and settle the myth that IBS is not all in your head. Not everyone has the answer, so it's important to leverage your relationship with your doctor and to question treatment options. Be positive, things will get better. We finish on a discussion about diet, as it is now recognized as a trigger of symptoms in some people, and a dietitian that understands GI is key to your health care. Be careful with a low FODMAP diet, as it is not an elimination diet. Lastly, the role of gastropsychology and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, can be helpful to control your thoughts. Hi everybody, it's Joanna Ruddy, and um, I'm here with Jeffrey Roberts, and we were um, talking a few weeks ago about some of the patients that we hear from on a daily and weekly basis, uh, patients with IBS, and um, just kind of thinking about some of the things that we as patients ourselves wish that we had known about the condition, um, things to expect, um, both good and bad, and we thought it would be a valuable video to create and share um, our, our own experiences, but also uh, the experiences and feedback from many different IBS patients. Hi, Jeffrey, how are you? Hi, I'm good, Johanna. Thank you so much for, uh, for asking to do this video because I think it's really very interesting for patients to know that, first of all, they're not alone and we, they can gain the knowledge that we have and, and gain the knowledge of others who have IBS. So, um, you know, I've had IBS for so many years, for well over 25 years, and I wish that somebody had told me some things that I learned over the years. So this is, this is a great opportunity to, uh, to share the feedback that we've received and, and our own knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to hear what the feedback was. So you did a, a, just a very, um, random survey of the patients that you contact with on a regular basis, correct? And ask them this question. I did. So I reached out to our communities uh, online, on Facebook, on Twitter, on various social channels. 
and just ask that question, you know, what it, what I wish someone had told me about IBS, just left it very open and allowed people to share what they, um, what they had on their mind. And I think what came up as number one is how incredibly common IBS is among people. I don't think, you know, people realize that IBS is extremely common. A lot of people are suffering silently and they're just not aware that others, you know, maybe in the same room, maybe the, who they work with or they go to school with have the same condition. So it's, it's quite um, common and it would be nice uh, if people were a little more open about their symptoms, because then they would be better understood. That was also another point that came up. Yeah, that's a good point because we've talked before about the stigma that's attached to IBS and um, kind of what drives that in those three different types of stigma. But I think because the prevalency is so great, um, so many people do have this diagnosis or if not an official diagnosis, they have the symptoms that they live with every day. If we talked about it more and were more open and honest about it, I think that the stigma would really start to decrease and maybe even go away um, in some some instances, I believe. Oh, I completely agree with that. It's, it's very true. When some people start to rhyme off their symptoms, um, they don't realize that others might be suffering the same symptoms and they might describe them a little bit differently than others um, because there's a certain amount of stigma um, there was somebody today who asked about, um, you know, sexual encounters and the problems that they're having related to that. And it's a very common issue that comes up fairly often, but people don't really want to talk about it. And I think it would be really good if people were more, try to be more open with their symptoms. And that's why we create these communities to allow people to speak more freely about them. Right. right. Um, and I that's the best thing, in my opinion, about Tuesday Night IBS that you and I co-moderate is that we're really trying to educate both clinicians and patients on, you know, the commonalities of these symptoms. And I think, you know, in the past, we've had a topic around sexual issues for patients who have IBS and how traumatizing that can be and isolating if your symptoms are out of control. Um, and all of these other topics that we've talked about on a weekly basis to try and help bring down that stigma and let people know that they're not alone in this. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. We had some people who talk, uh, spoke about how flares are the nature of the disease and they want people to, to realize that. However, some people were very, um, felt very strongly that IBS is indeed curable and you don't have to live with it. And I think we've had this, these conversations before that there are a number of ways that you can manage your symptoms, whether it be diet using a low FODMAP diet, which has proven to be quite successful for a number of people, whether you use um, some medication in, con in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy or even hypnotherapy, which we spoke about as well. So when I first read that somebody said that, you know, IBS is indeed curable, I would have to say 25 years ago when I was first diagnosed, I would never have believed that. And now that I've seen uh, patients uh, who both have, you know, minor issues versus major issues, they do have a better quality of life. Not that necessarily they would see it as curable, but they're dealing with flares. Flares are in the nature of disease and realizing that I may have a flare, but it's going to pass and I'm going to live my life a little more normally than I used to live it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think management is key. And sometimes when your management is really going well, you can 
feel like maybe I've been cured, you know, like my diet, I'm following this diet regimen and I'm taking, you know, I'm using CBT and I'm being mindful of the stress that I have in my life, etc. I think it can, it can mimic, if you will, a cure, so to speak, and really limit the number of flares that you might experience. Um, but I also think it's important that remember that IBS as well as all the functional or, or disorders of gut brain interaction are very heterogeneous. So not one patient is alike, you know? So what works for you, Jeffrey, may not work for me and vice versa. Um, we're all very different and our bodies respond differently. So I would say for patients who are like, what? It's, it's curable, where's my cure? Um, it would be calm down. It's okay. You know, we're going to, there is management that can give back that quality of life and make you feel like you have found the magic cure. Um, unfortunately, science hasn't found the cure to IBS yet. Um, but I think that, you know, maybe within our lifetime, we will find out more about what causes it. We're already there in the microbiome and looking at, you know, the gut mucosal issues and the permeability issues after an infection, um, which is developing into post-infection IBS. And there is some evidence of some very mild inflammation in some patients with IBS that might be an underlying um, trigger for it. So I think science is continuing to catch up and research is continuing to be done. So, um, so be hopeful. There's, there's hope, I think. Well, it, you bring up a very good point is one person, you know, makes a claim that IBS is curable and in their minds, because they've actually managed their symptoms accordingly, that they feel that it is curable for themselves. So to the very good point that you brought up is IBS is, is a little different in everybody and treatments differ from person to person. So one person may see a treatment option as if it's cured them when in fact, it maybe have it, it has cured a symptom, uh, whereas somebody might not see that symptom as being so problematic for themselves, and so by curing that symptom, it didn't really help them. Right. So it's it's very subjective, and you know we, you certainly learn that when you deal with a community where you have extremes on both ends. Um, so very good point. We know that it's not necessarily curable, but it is in some people's eyes because they've been able to manage their symptoms. And I think that was really the point that the person was trying to make. Right. Um, one interesting note, and I, I have this problem as well, is you wake up with a flat tummy and then by the end of the day, it becomes more and more swollen all day long. And that seems to be a common problem for a lot of people. Uh, we, we talk people through different ways that they can manage it. Um, perhaps a low FODMAP diet might help in that regard. But it's just such a common complaint that some people feel like they are, you know, much larger by the end of the day than they were earlier in the day. It's something that they would like to have known. Yeah, I think that's the most common thing I hear from a lot of female patients is this distension that they end up with and kind of mimicking early pregnancy in a lot of patients. That's very frustrating um, for for a lot of female patients who feel like, oh my gosh, you know, like I feel like I'm expecting a baby here. Um, and I think one thing patients will say to me all the time is I'm always bloated. And I think we've said in the past, Jeffrey, that there's a difference between bloated and distended. So I always ask them when you say bloated, 
what are you what do you mean do you feel like you have a lot of air trapped into in your abdomen do you find that you're belching a lot do you find that you're passing gas is that the, the cause of the distension or is it not necessarily that it's just your stomach starts to distend as you mentioned throughout the day and those two things are different and treated a little bit differently so if it's more of a distension i usually um, direct them to um try the diaphragmatic breathing techniques, um, which is a really nice way to kind of deal with that distension. Um, and if it's bloating, then that's something different that can be handled with over-the-counter treatments or um, some more natural treatments, peppermint, that sort of thing as well. True, very true. Okay, this is something that, that has come up over the years. Um, patients feel that uh, doctor, some doctors dismiss their problems and claim that it's that it's in their heads. Well, actually, it, part of the problem may be actually in our head, as we know, because of the the brain gut access and all of the studies that have been surrounding um, the gut and the brain. Um, so some people say that their symptoms might be triggered by stress. So be mindful of your thoughts, intentions, and actions, uh, because it's not all in your head. It's a very good point, and it's also helps to uh, make people feel that they are, you know, validated that, you know, even though they might hear from family and friends that maybe this is all in your head, maybe you're just doing this as an excuse. Um, it's, it's not in your head. There's definitely a component that's happening, but it's not in your head. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the number one thing I hear. I hear the same thing from people that feel really isolated and they're, they're thinking maybe they are, you know, exaggerating these symptoms or making them up because there hasn't been a, a positive test or a positive, you know, MRI scan to show a, a reason for these symptoms. Um, and, and that's a great point, you know, explaining the brain gut axis is so important to understanding kind of the, the pathophysiology of these conditions, um, how the brain and the gut are connected and hardwired and how they talk to one another. And, and you're right, stress exacerbates the symptoms 100,000 times. So really being mindful of that. Um, and there's so many things that we've talked about before, you know, with CBT and hypnotherapy that can kind of help with managing up those symptoms and keeping those stress levels down so that the brain is, is communicating appropriately to the gut and not aggravating the gut. Yeah, well, it, it really helps that we have tools now to manage these things. I think when I was first diagnosed and I was very young and a doctor suggested to my mother who was taking me to my appointments that perhaps it's, you know, it's in my head uh, what I'm feeling rather than actually looking at something, whether it was organic or whether it was something physical. And that really impacted me. It took me many years to really realize that that doctor was not correct. Um, and that perhaps that was where science was at the time, but it's not where we are now. So to, for a doctor to suggest uh, to a patient that it's all in your head, um, perhaps it's being misunderstood in terms of what, what's being asked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a similar story um, with 13 years of, of suffering um, with physicians, not knowing what it was, not, not giving me a diagnosis of IBS, um, lots of tests showing up normal, um, but symptoms completely out of control and driving a very, very poor quality of life. 
um, and and definitely starting to affect my mental well-being. You know, it can be very depressing and anxiety inducing to have chronic uncontrolled symptoms that you just don't know why they're happening and you start to feel really hopeless um, because you're missing work, you're missing time with your family and friends, you're constantly in the bathroom, you don't know what your life's going to look like from day to day. I mean, that's a very common thing that we hear from a lot of patients um, and the cycle just seems like it's never going to end. Um, so when a doctor says that you're making it up or that it, you're exaggerating, I mean, I had one physician tell me, well, you know, women are known to be exaggerators and particularly women in, you know, early thirties at the time was my age and young children and working full time. You can maybe be exaggerating some of this and maybe you're just stressed out. You need to, you need to figure out what's driving your stress. And I remember thinking, are you insane? Why would I be here if I, like, I have better things to do than make an appointment with you and make up a story. Like, that's crazy. And second of all, I'm working full time managing a home and two small children. How do you want me to manage this stress? Give them up for adoption? Like, seriously, like, I don't know what you're asking me to do to manage the symptoms um, and, and help me here. So I well, think that's, that's the whole, that's, I mean, you touched on a very important point is you need to advocate for yourself. And I think that people with IBS tend to realize this, that they need to advocate for themselves uh, because there's nobody else who's really stepping up because nobody really understands it. You know, a chronic illness, nobody really understands it like you yourself understands it. But in that situation where you need to um, inform the physician or whoever it happens to be, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a boss, uh, whether it's a teacher, um, you need to advocate for yourself. And I don't think that uh, people realize this coming into a diagnosis of IBS, that it is somewhat misunderstood uh, on many levels. Right. And sometimes you do have to advocate for yourself. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think, but you know, so Jeff, do you find some of the patients that you work with and hear from um, really want to to educate themselves on the condition so that then they can in turn, you know, kind of help educate their doctor a little bit as well? Well, that's really how I started is I wanted to provide patients with the, the, the knowledge so that they can go back to their physicians and have a, a full, um, conversation about both their condition and treatment options. That's really what we try and do. Some patients though, want, don't want to do that. Some patients want to just to be told, you know, what it is that they have and then try and treat it themselves. And a lot of people talk about natural treatments. And we, so we try and understand what does that mean by a natural treatment? Because sometimes medications are a natural treatment because medications aren't necessarily artificial like peppermint oil, for instance, to manage ab abdominal pain or even bloating. Um, that's natural. So some people want to know the, the information and some people don't. Some people don't necessarily have the, the, the background to understand some of the information that we present. So we try to uh, break it down for them and uh, tell them what it means to themselves, uh, how it impacts themselves. Um, so I'm sure you, you come across this all the time as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second part of, on my job is to help the physicians become more educated about how to help these patients. You know, um, we talk a lot about 
working with the physicians and helping engage with them on Tuesday night IBS. But a large part of that is helping them feel confident about making a diagnosis of IBS when they see these patients in their clinics and then helping them know how to treat them appropriately and what that might look like in a whole comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to patient care. And so I think that's been really gratifying, at least for me, because I can talk to the patients about their role, but then in turn talk to the physician about their role and what they need to be looking for and doing and saying um, so that everyone is kind of getting those best outcomes. Oh, exactly. So we try and help patients as well speak in a language that a physician would normally understand. Um, so something that would resonate with them and something that would, would tweak something in their mind as to why this symptom is important. So we try and help patients do that as well. So um, we run into difficulty with some patients who want to be diagnosed and we don't want to diagnose patients. Yeah. So we have um, to tell some people that, you know, you can have multiple illnesses at once. You can have IBS as well as inflammatory bowel disease at the same time. Um, some people don't realize that. They think it's one or the other. And so that's a bit confusing for some people as well to be able to help them both try and understand what's going on, but try and make them aware that there's other things that they may not be aware of that could be going on. The most important thing we do about IBS, I mean, I wish what I was told initially when I was diagnosed with IBS is that not everybody necessarily has all the answers and you might have to go to multiple sources to get those answers. And that's okay. Um, you know, but we always say, once you have those answers, run them by your physician, if you have a good relationship with them, to make sure that they're comfortable with that decision as well in terms of what your treatment might be. Yeah, definitely. And I always tell patients, you know, don't be afraid to find a second opinion. To, you have, patients have rights in, in questioning treatment options, in refusing treatments that are recommended if they don't feel comfortable with them or with the side effects. Um, and, and seeking a second opinion if they're feeling like the physician that they're working with is just not meeting their needs. Um, and I think that's a, an important thing for patients to feel like they do have the power to do that. And um, I didn't know that early on in my, in my life. I kind of felt like, you know, this hierarchical, this is the doctor and they know all. Um, and, and that is usually a good approach, but not always appropriate many times if you're not getting appropriate care and being treated with respect and dignity. Well, that's all, that's all about empowering the, the patient and having that conversation. And I think the one thing that we haven't really touched on is, uh, and it didn't actually come up in the, in the survey, was that you need to have a good relationship with your physician. You need to find the, the right physician for yourself. So you touched on a little bit that if you have a physician that, that's not really understanding your needs and understanding your symptoms, that maybe you need to find another physician that's willing to work with you. That's just so important to have somebody that you can work with uh, along the way because IBS does wax and wane. Um, although some patients might feel that they're cured, they're going to have flares at some point. And some of those flares may be so severe that they're really not quite sure what's going on. And they just need to be able to have that conversation and have a relationship with a physician that they can ask those questions. I think it's important for patients and doctors to remember that you're a team, you know, it needs to be a partnership and um, you're working together towards the same goal. 
Um, and if one person on the team isn't playing the same game, it can be disastrous. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. So a number of patients didn't realize that there were support groups uh, that existed that understand everything they're, they're going through. So many people say, wow, I've just stumbled upon you. This is fabulous. I'm speaking to people who actually understand what I'm going through. That's just so important. I mean, with the proliferation of Facebook groups and, and social channels and so forth, there are people out there who understand what you're going through. Leverage the knowledge, uh, leverage the conversation, feel safe uh, in a group, find the right group that's that's appropriate for you. Not every group might be appropriate for you. You need to find the right one where you feel comfortable and uh, where you're being listened to and not really necessarily spoken to and told what to do, but have that conversation back and forth and feel like it's part of family. We've had um, communities where people have met uh, others, uh, they've got married. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, so awesome. you can have these long lasting relationships with these support groups where you may need to uh, tap into it every now and again, but it's nice to be able to go back to a place that, that feels comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Being Knowing that you're not alone in, in this, this chronic illness, knowing that there are other people that are experiencing the same things and, and maybe have some really good advice for you as well um, is really helpful and makes you feel less stigmatized, isolated, and, and hopeless. And I think that's a big thing. Like hope is a big, important, like big thing. Um, that many people with any chronic illness feel a sense of hopelessness many times. And so that's like the, always the thing that I emphasize when I'm communicating with patients is there is hope, you know, it may not seem like it right now, but I promise you. Um, so I, I think that's key is continuing that community feel because that really is what gives you that hope. I think it's a, you made a great point. Um, if we would have had this conversation 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't have been as upbeat um, as to, you know, treatment options, how to manage things, um, knowing that there's others that are out there and so forth. And I think it's really um, positive that we are not talking about the, the negatives of IBS, but talking about the positives. And I think that there's an attitude shift that's occurred with patients who have IBS, that they're not really just talking about how bad the situation is, they want to have a positive outcome. Uh, they want to have a better um, quality of life. We want to support them to be able to do that. And I think that's really an important point is that hope, being positive, um, trying to say that things can get better and things will get better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think you're right. We've come a long way in just a relatively short amount of time. Um, 10 years isn't really all that long when you think about how slow science can move sometimes <laughs> in research. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. We, we've made a lot of a lot of forward steps in this process. So, um, so one of the last points that I'll make is um, somebody mentioned about uh, diet that if you actually um, track your diet and symptoms, things will improve. And I think that leads to the conversation about the low FODMAP diet, which in the last several years has really become very um, centered in terms of how we're treating people is th there are a number of uh, foods in our diet that can trigger symptoms. 
and you need to manage that appropriately. And the best person to be doing that with is with a dietitian to manage the low FODMAP diet. But it's to, to the point now where uh, at the beginning of my illness, um, I complained about diet and I said, I don't understand. Food seems to be triggering my illness and nobody was really listening to me. And in the last, I'll go back and say 10 or 15 years, talking about diet and talking about being very careful about um, what it is that you're, you're putting in inside of you is actually affecting you is a very important thing. And validating that for patients has been really, really important to let them know that their diet can actually manage their illness. Yeah, I totally agree. I think diet is always something that maybe most patients, if not all patients initially think about, right? When they're getting these symptoms because they're like, maybe it's what I'm eating. Maybe it's something I ate. Maybe it was dinner last night. You know, that is always like the first thing you go to. But it's also something that all patients can control. Whereas lots of medications don't work for every person or have adverse side effects. Diet is something that almost always is beneficial in some component. Even if it doesn't solve all your symptoms, it will alleviate a number of them and make it more tolerable and more manageable. Um, the one thing, and I love that you emphasize working with a dietitian because I think that's the key thing. Um, and, and if possible, a dietitian that works with GI patients, not just an overall general dietitian, because many times they don't really have the knowledge base to deal with GI patients. Um, but I think one thing that I'm really finding important to emphasize to patients is that low FODMAP as a diet is as the elimination phase is really important to be on a limited. It's not meant, elimination is not meant to be long-term. Right. Um, it's just to find those key trigger foods and then reintroduction phase is really, really important because I'm finding a lot of patients coming, uh, emailing me saying that they've eliminated like 500 different foods and they're like all i eat now is white rice and chicken broth and then i'm like oh no 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 that's you're going to become nutritionally deficient and then you're starting to look at other issues like you know more are we are we having anxiety around the food um is there an arfid component here so we really have to emphasize that the elimination is is just to find those key foods and, and working with a dietitian will really help you to manage that process and those different phases of that diet oh, yeah, i completely agree and and you're absolutely it's a very important point is uh, there are three steps to the low fodmap diet it is not an elimination diet uh, it's unfortunate that the word diet is in there because it's not meant to be long-term. It's really more of a diagnostic tool to find out what foods you can actually tolerate and, and, and the quantity of that food that you can actually manage. Uh, but it's never meant to be an elimination diet the whole time. And that's a trap that a lot of patients do fall into. And so we're constantly saying that, no, you need to reintroduce. And that's why working with a dietitian, and to your point, working with a dietitian that's familiar with a low FODMAP diet is, is very important. I've always said to my physician is that um, it's not necessarily the, the foods that I'm eating, but it's the act of eating in itself. And so patients need to understand that as well, this, this visceral hypersensitivity that we have with IBS, that your gut is a little more sensitive and is gonna react to things a little more strongly than others. So there's that component as well. It's not necessarily FODMAP, but with FODMAP and, and increasing the amounts of sugars and the bloating and so forth, this visceral hypersensitivity might actually be something that's being triggered. 
so it's a combination. Uh, it's something that patients should be aware of. Um, so for me, it's the act of eating in itself. Um, sometimes regardless of what I'm eating, whether it's safe foods or not safe foods, it's something that you just have to roll with and deal with, uh, but not get too worked up about because it's going to pass. Tomorrow's going to be another day. That's right. You'll start again with a nice flat tummy. <laughs> have you had any patients talking to you about um, benefits that they have found with um, gastropsych and CBT or hypnotherapy, um, acceptance therapy, any of those um, central uh, treatments? Well, they haven't necessarily spoken about um, CBT. Um, we do speak often about CBT as being very, very valuable in many situations. Um, we haven't had anybody actually come back saying that, you know, they've had necessarily a treatment with somebody and they feel that this is the right approach. Um, we, we think that there needs to be better access to um, GI uh, psychologists uh, who actually understand the mechanism and understand what steps you can possibly take. So we try and help people understand it and then make inquiries locally as to, you know, to find um, some healthcare professionals that are familiar with this. It's such an important aspect uh, that can help so many people deal with so many issues because it goes beyond just IBS. I mean, dealing with anxiety and so forth. And it's kind of a, what happened first? Did the anxiety happen before the IBS or did the IBS cause anxiety to occur? And so, you know, CBT uh, and or hypnotherapy can be very valuable for those um, both ailments. Um, so we, we highly recommend them. We just haven't really heard in, too much feedback from people about it. Yeah, I haven't heard. Uh, I recommend it if I think that the patient meets the criteria to be for it to be beneficial because not every patient meets criteria for CBT to work, for example. Um, it does require a fair amount of commitment to to the process. Um, but I, so I recommend it occasionally, um, but I think lack of access is a big problem um, for sure. One good thing, um, if you wanna say, um, because of COVID um, is the increase in telemedicine and telehealth and the GI psychologists are, are really doing far more telehealth than they ever were prior to COVID. And so that does increase a little bit of access just for those patients who wouldn't necessarily have been able to travel to an office. Um, it gives them access across state lines because that is something available um, depending on where you live. Um, to be act, to access a psychologist in another state with telehealth. So, and CBT and hypnotherapy are both shown to have the same uh, efficacy rates, whether they're um, given in a face-to-face -face format or a telehealth format. Oh, so that's so important to, to hear that information. Um, I think one of the problems that we have is that patients aren't even aware that this could be a treatment option for them because it's not necessarily presented to them by their uh, family physician or by their GI specialist. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's one thing that, that the Rome Foundation is working on is to really educate physicians on the benefit of this for their patients and how and when to refer them. Um, but also working to, to train more psychologists to be able to work with GI patients. Um, because that's, that's a special niche market there, niche training. Um, so we're doing a lot of training on that too 
flood the market with more um, psychologists to be able to provide this type of service. So um, hopefully access will, will begin to increase and more patients will begin to, to be able to find some benefits from this. And I did want to mention real quickly, we do have a directory. Um, it's a global directory. You can search it in the US um, by state and then um, other countries just by the country. Um, but it's um, romegipsych.org is the URL and it's a directory you can search um, by treatment modality, you can search uh, by age, etc. And, and maybe hopefully find a provider in your area who, who does this type of treatment. Very good point. Well, thank you. That's an excellent resource and um, I refer patients to that resource now. Um, it, the list isn't very long right now. But it will increase. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the state of uh, dietitians who weren't familiar with FODMAP uh, when it was first introduced, it was a very small list. And now it's a, it's a huge list coming out of Monash. Um, and so I suspect that uh, GI psych as well will become a huge uh, uh, issue because of access. And uh, it will increase. So, you know, we'll just... You and I will just keep talking about it until it actually happens. We'll just beat the drum for it. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge supporter of it, and I've, I've used it personally. I find it incredibly helpful. Um, I, I, I haven't used the hypnosis yet um, because it's really meant for more of the pain control aspect, which I, I don't have a lot of right now, thank goodness, knock on wood. Um, but the CBT treatment, I've, I've done those treatments, and I find them incredibly helpful. Um, particularly when you start having a flare and you, you, you know, your first kind of process is to start to catastrophize a little bit and be like, oh my gosh, what if I can't drive to the grocery store now and now I can't do this and now my life is ruined and the whole weekend is ruined and you just kind of like spiral. And, and so it's been really good to be like, no, let's just center again. No, even if something happens, you have the skills to handle it and it's going to be okay. And um, it really kind of helps me refocus and reshape my thoughts. So it's been really, really helpful. <laughs> that's really a great, it's a great timeline, actually. You have the skills to deal with it. Yeah. And that's probably an important thing as well, is to tell somebody with, with IBS when they're first diagnosed, is you actually do have the skills to deal with this. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah, it's great. I remember when, when the therapist first told me that, I was like, but you know I don't. That's why I'm seeing you. And she was like, no, 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 no. You do, and this is why. And then she, we went through, and I was like, oh, I do. So I, I refer back to that on my own, and it's really helpful. I combine that with some visual, visualization and diaphragmatic breathing, guided breathing techniques, and, and before too long, I'm feeling a lot better. So. Oh, the breathing is is so important, and it was actually something that got me by for the first ten years. Was understanding breathing and box breathing, um, is that really got me through so many situations where I had such severe abdominal pain, but I was in a, a situation where I really couldn't leave, and I had to deal with it. Yeah, and um, you can do it anywhere. Absolutely, absolutely, it's great. I kind of um, reference it to um, breathing, uh, Lamaze breathing. If you, uh, if women ever have gone through childbirth and went through uh, the Lamaze training, where you're really, you know, doing some visualization techniques and that breathing, the regimented 
you know, it's, I did that with my two boys when I, I had them and it was so helpful. I didn't have drugs. <laughs> well, this has been really, really helpful. I, I appreciate you jumping on with me today and, and just, you know, sharing what some of the patients that you're working with are, are sharing with you and how you're working to help them and educate them. And I really, really appreciate working with you every week in Tuesday night IBS and and all the, the fun things that we're doing there too. So thanks so much for all that you're doing for patients. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to share both, you know, some of my uh, ideas uh, as well as the patients of and, and the various members of our community. It's always a joy working with you and your organizations and, um, and the amount of work that you actually do. This is, uh, I think, going to be very helpful for a lot of patients to realize that they're just not alone and uh, some of these issues are very common. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, well, until next time, thanks so much. We'll see you soon, Jeffrey. Bye-bye.